2009, November 25th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 41, Interstellar Travel and Colonization. All right, so today is in fact the, the day before Thanksgiving, so it's uh, a notably sparse attendance, but I, I thank my hardcore who comes to this class. Um, today we're going to venture off into a topic that sounds an awful lot like science fiction, but I want to actually show you there is a, a core of science fact at the, at the basis of this. Today we're going to be talk, t talking about interstellar travel and, and, and colonization. We're asking a particular question. What if we actually didn't want to be content with looking at spectra or looking at signals coming from an extraterrestrial civilization? What if we wanted to go physically, either send a probe or go ourselves, which I think ultimately we would want to go ourselves. So today what we're going to look at are the challenges of interstellar travel and colonization and how they relate to something we can learn scientifically about the question of intelligences throughout the galaxy. And it will lead into a little bit the lectures that will be next week on Monday and Tuesday on the Fermi paradox and the so-called rare earth hypothesis. What we're going to look at is, is the question of interstellar travel. How do I travel from our star system to another star system that might have a planet of interest to us? Might be a, an Earth with a biomarker or a place with, with ET trying to phone home. What we're going to first of all show is that it is a problem that is extremely challenging. And it's challenging primarily because of two factors, the vast distances involved and the simple unrelenting facts of physics. You can just only do so much without violating the laws of physics. We're going to look at the current state of the art, and a simple fact is the current state of art in spacecraft, the fastest things we can as human beings build practically, are many orders of magnitude too slow to accomplish interstellar travel in any kind of efficient way. And we'll, we'll look at some of those numbers. You kind of do some of those numbers in your homework, too. In fact, what it really comes down to is if we really wanted practical interstellar travel, and we'll define what we mean by practical, we're talking about achieving light speed or very near light speed, maybe 10% of the speed of light. There's nothing physically to stop you from doing that, but as we're going to see, it entails absolutely enormous energy requirements. Although we're not going to do this quantitatively, it basically takes the entire energy output of humanity multiplied by a factor of 10 or 100 to accomplish which means it's not crazy, but it just isn't something we can do today. Now, if we then turn from the question of just say, well, let's say we can get around those practicalities. What if we can harvest the, the enormous energies and, and the exotic technologies required to do interstellar travel with known physics? Then it turns out it enables something very interesting, a fact that, that is not appreciated by the Drake equation is that colonization of other star systems leads to an exponential growth in the number of inha in, in, inhabited systems. It's one of the principles of colonization. It's basically a piece of population dynamics that when it comes into play, it completely changes the whole game that's outlined by the Drake equation. And in fact, in many ways, perhaps invalidates the Drake equation. And what I want to demonstrate towards the end is that even with very modest assumptions, the time to colonize an entire galaxy is actually less than the lifetime of the galaxy itself, even with very, very simple, modest types of star flight. We're not even talking speed of light stuff. So today we're going to talk about something that sounds like science fiction, but I want to assure you it isn't. It's really motivated by a single question. We've, we've been asking this question all along. Is there life elsewhere in the universe? Is there someone else out there we can talk to, or is it just microbes? Well, at some point, and I'd like to hope that in my own lifetime, at least the first one is going to happen. At some time, we're going to see a clear, distinctive detection of an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of its, of its parent star, 
And that when we get a spectrum, we're going to see confirmed, clear biomarker signatures. We're going to see ozone, we're going to see oxygen, we're going to see uh, maybe a little bit of methane. Who knows, maybe it'll even get as, as exotic as seeing a red edge of plant life. If that happens, as I said, if it happens around a nearby star, something within reasonable cosmic reach, it's going to absolutely galvanize humanity to go there. Even more so is if we get a localizable signal from an extraterrestrial intelligence. We see a signal come down, maybe like the Arecibo signal, color-coded there, maybe something even more exotic. But if we actually detected a signal from an artif of, of truly artificial nature, of, from an intelligent civilization, we might want to go visit them, or if they're too far away, at least start talking to them if, if they're still there. We, we don't know if the signal is just some kind of repeating loop robotic thing and, and they're long gone. But I think it's pretty clear that it, everybody in this room, I think, or anybody I would talk to would agree that once we discover actual life somewhere off our own planet, we will have a tremendous and overpowering desire to go there. And so the question is, how do we accomplish that? What are the limitations and challenges of accomplishing the goal of going and saying hello to someone in person? Well, there's an old saying that getting there is half the fun, but when it comes to interstellar travel, getting there is not only half the fun, it's all of the problem. It's all of the problem technologically. And the reason has to do with basically a mashup between a problem of basic physics, that all objects we want to send, be they a small robotic probe or a ship full of people, has mass. Anything with mass, if I want to accelerate it up to a certain speed, I need to expend energy to do that acceleration. The more acceleration I require, the faster I want it to go, the more energy I'm going to have to expend. It's a simple, irreducible fact of nature. If I've got to carry my, my mass with me, it's going to take energy to get it up to speed. So that's the fundamental physics problem. And then I'm going to couple that fundamental, irreducible problem of physics with one simple fact of life. Interstellar distances are simply vast. Right? Just take locally. Nearby, the average distance between stars in the local solar neighborhood is six light years. So that coupled with the difficulty of accelerating stuff up to a fast enough speed to cross those vast distances means I need either unusually high speeds or I need a lot of time to pull this problem off. It's going to be two fundamental challenges, and I can't do anything about either of them. I can't make the distances shorter, and I can't change the energy requirements of the problem. Now, in this discussion, I'm going to banish what I would call science fiction results. Okay, We're not going to talk about warp drives. We're not going to talk about wormholes. We're not going to talk about any kind of speculative faster-than-light drive. As far as I'm concerned, according to our current knowledge of physics and according to any knowledge of physics that's even hinted at by the raggedy edges, faster-than-light is simply off the books. Okay, It's a wonderful plot device for novels and movies because it keeps the story moving along. But it probably doesn't happen in reality. I'd love to be wrong, but I think in this case, I'm relatively confident to say faster than light is off the books. What I want to concentrate on is what can we do with technologies we can actually build? Whether we actually decide to build them is a different question, but actual realizable technologies limited by our knowledge of physics now that will allow us to travel to interstellar spaces. And what we'll see is the problem is not impossible, it's simply expensive. Okay. And herein lies the problem. I mean, this is the physical problem we're going to describe, but here's the basic problem. We've all seen this picture. This is near space. This is the surrounding 10 light years around the sun, and it's really, really empty. 
The mean distances between stars are roughly six light years. It's a very, very long distance. State of the art. The fastest spacecraft we has ever left the Earth is the New Horizons probe. It was launched in January of 2006, but it has been progressively decelerating because it's moving away. It's from the sun. It's clawing out of the sun's gravity field. So the fastest it ever moved is the fastest it left Earth, and it will continue to slow down, but still be moving pretty darn fast. New Horizons is a spacecraft which is designed to fly into the outer solar system and make the first flyby of Pluto and Charon, the outer the former ninth planet of the solar system, but the large icy dwarf planet of the outer solar system, and hopefully one or two other Kuiper Belt objects. It was launched in January of 2006. It took a little over a year to reach the planet Jupiter, a distance of only four astronomical units away. The Jupiter encounter is where it got a Jupiter gravity assist, which gave it its next big boost of speed, taking off the deceleration and loss of speed as it clawed its way out to Jupiter. Jupiter gave it another kick, and it's on its way towards a Pluto flyby in 2015. So do the math. It's basically, in round numbers, going to take nine and a half years just to get to Pluto. Pluto is only 40 astronomical units away. Well, 40 odd astronomical units away. It will fly past Pluto, fly past a couple Kuiper Belt objects, and it will leave the solar system. The boundary is somewhat arbitrary, so the date is less specific, around the year 2029. Okay. To put that in just a little bit of perspective, I will be 68 years old in 2029. I hope maybe an emeritus lecturer here or dead or something. But that's a long time. And that's just to leave the solar system and enter interstellar space. Voyager 1 is currently the speed champion of, of the humanity. It's moving at a speed of 62,100 kilometers per hour. That's 38,600 miles per hour. It's heading off in some random direction of space. It was not directed towards an outer star. Its mission was to pass by Jupiter and Saturn, not to go to another star. So if, in fact, we had somehow managed that everything was just right so that the Jupiter-Saturn flyby left it on a trajectory pointing straight at the nearest star, the M-dwarf Proxima Centauri, four and a quarter light years away, at this speed, which is the largest speed humanity has ever achieved for any physical object that we've, we've built, will take 74,000 years to reach Proxima Centauri. That's the kind of timescales we're working with with the current state of the art. We'll say a little bit more about this when we compare this to other technologies, but that's where we are now. That's today. So that's not going to get us to the stars in any kind of reasonable time. This is why SETI is so interesting. A light signal traveling for 74,000 years would cross three quarters of the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. This barely gets us to the neighbor star by technology. So clearly, communication via light, lasers, radio, whatever we decide to invent as a way to communicate with other technological civilizations is far, far more efficient. We're doing it now without much energy cost at all. So talk really is cheap when it comes to interstellar communication. But if we want to go there, we want a close-up picture of a planet which doesn't have intelligent life around it. We want to go there, colonize it, and live there. We want to get off our Earth with all of its problems and go screw some other planet up. It's going to take us time. One of the big problems comes down to physics. Okay, so that's the vastness problem. The physics problem really comes down to this problem that if you've got mass, to accelerate it up to speed, you need to have en expend energy. The problem is you have to carry your fuel, your energy source with you for most conventional forms of travel, right? You want to go in a car, you've got to fill your tank, 
you're carrying the gross weight of that fuel with the weight of your vehicle and it adds to the budget of the energy expended. The bigger your gas tank, yes, the greater your range, but you're paying a counter cost in how much it costs you to move that gas from point A to point B. This gets even worse when you start wanting to accelerate yourself to very large speeds because the amount of energy you can squeeze out of an ounce of fuel, if you will, is variable. Most of our fuel sources are very inefficient, but let's just sort of look at it more generically here. If you want to accelerate from zero to some speed, you're going to require fuel. That fuel has a mass, and you've got to carry it with you. The more your total mass is, the more total fuel you carry compared to your payload mass, the more energy that's going to require you to accelerate it. The more energy that's required, the more fuel you've got to carry to expend that energy. Very clearly, that's an exponential growth. And in fact, without doing the derivation, you can derive something called the rocket equation. The rocket equation says the ratio of your initial mass, payload plus fuel, divided by your final mass, basically the mass of your payload after you've expended all your fuel is one way to do that, or half your fuel if you'd like to go home again, is basically equal to the exponential, e to the power of the velocity you want to achieve divided by the exhaust velocity of your propulsion system. Now, you're never going to work numerically with this problem, but you can basically see the trouble here. If I want to increase the speed at which I'm going, I'm going to require exponentially more fuel. If I wanted to achieve a speed of a fraction of the speed of light, I'm going to have to carry vastly more fuel mass than the, the mass of the rocket ship or the crew compartment or the robotic piece that's actually being driven by the propulsion system. In fact, it gets into sort of ridiculous situations. I end up with fuel masses that are sort of the size of a small asteroid to move a house. A small house with very tight accommodations. So it's a real problem. It is a basic problem of physics. If you carry your fuel with you, you are in an exponential situation of growth because you also not only have to carry yourself, you must also carry your fuel. So, how does this problem couple into the problem of interstellar travel? The vast distances we can't do anything about. So what we're going to look at is how we bridge those vast interstellar distances. You've got to be moving really fast. The fastest speed in the universe is the speed of light, about 300,000 kilometers per second. It is the ultimate speed of everything. Information, anything in the universe can't move faster than the speed of light. You want to get as close to the speed of light as you can and try to get the travel time to something reasonable. So let's just pick a number, and I'll, I'll justify this number a little bit further down the pipe. Let's pick a number of one-tenth the speed of light. So we're not even getting into the regime where, physically speaking, we're relativistic, where we're starting to see some of the funky effects when you start traveling close to the speed of light a la Einstein. If we had a speed of a tenth the speed of light, then the nearest stars on average are about six light years away. So at a tenth of the speed of light, you can basically reach the nearest stars in about 50 years. 50 or 60 years, but call it 50 years. That's an interesting number. That's basically smaller than a human lifetime. That's how I pick that number. But if you wanted to do this, the energy costs are enormous. As I said, the energy amount of fuel increases exponentially with the velocity. So you're going to end up with fuel masses that are absolutely vast. So what you're going to want to do is pick a fuel source that contains an awful lot of go for the, for the gram a lot of energy yield per gram of fuel expended. 
There's two basic forms of fuel that are available to us right now. The first of these is familiar. It's chemical. I basically burn something. I oxidize some kind of high power density stuff, a hypergolic fuel of some kind. This particular picture, which in fact is the launch of the New Horizons spacecraft, is sitting on top of a, of a, of a classic booster. This booster has a combination of solid fuel, which is basically oxidation of a solid material to basically get it up into orbit, and then it has liquid fuel of various kinds. There's liquid oxygen and kerosene, or liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. For example, that was one of the fuel sources behind the Saturn V lifter, which was the most powerful rocket we've ever built. Even with those kinds of things, the payload is the tiny little piece here at the top, a spacecraft weighing only a few hundred kilograms. It takes a multi-ton rocket carrying multi-tons of fuel just to get it off the Earth. So chemical energy has a very low yield per gram of total energy. And so it's, it's relatively efficient for what we're doing today, but it comes at a fairly high fuel cost. Going up the line, instead of breaking chemical bonds with oxidation, we go down and we start tapping the energy of the atomic nucleus. We either can use atomic fission or we can use nuclear fusion. We know how to do fission, that's what nuclear power plants are today. Fission of plutonium, uranium, things like that to yield energy. Fusion is still a little bit in the future. We haven't yet gotten self-sustaining fusion reactions in the laboratory using light elements like deuterium and tritium, but we're getting close. And in fact, probably unity gain Laboratory fusion will probably be achieved in the next decade. It will probably be a long time after that. We don't know how long, unless there's a big breakthrough in making it an efficient energy source for you know, making power for lighting lights. But it also would be available, or certainly envisionable, that it's a technological advance which could be applied to propulsion. And it would give us a much more go for the gram. And therefore, you would have to carry less of it to get yourself up to speed. And in fact, Fission or fusion power is probably a likely technology if properly applied, and there are still challenges for achieving a tenth the speed of light. It's still expensive. You still have to carry vastly more fuel than the weight of the rocket, but you can do it. Now, the ultimate fuel would be matter-antimatter. Matter and antimatter we haven't talked about in this class, but basically if I took an electron and an anti-electron, a so-called positron, and bring them together, their mass will completely annihilate into pure gamma-ray energy. Basically, E equals mc squared yields. A star fusing hydrogen into helium only gets 0.7% E equals mc squared yield. Antimatter is 100%. Antimatter has a lot of problems, not the least of which is production. I think the, the entire production of antimatter, antiprotons or antielectrons in high-speed colliders, can be measured in um, you know, the number of protons being made, not in grams or kilograms. The energy required to make antimatter on Earth is, is immense. Unless we figure out something cute, we're not going to make it. Forget dilithium crystals and fun stuff like that a la Star Trek. Matter-antimatter fuel's got all kinds of problems. It's rare, it's difficult to make, and even if you could make it in reasonable quantities, it has a tremendous amount of go for the gram, but it turns out it's really hard to utilize matter-antimatter anti matter annihilation as a form of fuel because it makes two gamma rays. And it's really hard to direct gamma rays out the back. If you bring a proton and an antiproton together, something like half the energy goes into neutrinos and other particles which you can't direct out the back. They just go through your engine and away. So while it's a wonderful mainstay of, of science fiction writers, and it is really the ultimate gram, go for the gram, it's got 
enormous practical, practical problems. So maybe you can solve these, but it would require a technology far more advanced than what we currently possess. So chemicals out is too low energy, so the place we're going to concentrate on is fission or fusion power. We know how to do that in principle. We think we can do it technologically. There's a couple of different concepts which have been on the books, an actual serious design studies for what I would call generically nuclear starships. These are spacecraft, very large, that use either fission power or fusion fission power of some kind to provide the go. One of these comes from the 1960s. Uh, some of you are kind of young. I, I, I remember growing up hearing about all the wonderful things atomic power could do. And people were kind of funny about all the wonderful stuff you could do about it with atomic power. You could, you could build gigantic trenches by lighting off lines of nuclear weapons to dig canals in, you know, a millisecond. And all these ideas were wonderful through the 50s until people realized you got all that radiation left over and it's kind of bad for, like, everything. So people stopped doing that. Then we basically banned in-air nuclear testing, which shut down any kind of nuclear engine testing. And then we went and had a treaty to ban bringing nuclear weapons into space. For obvious reasons, it's an easy way to trigger a nuclear war because once something's on a ballistic trajectory, it's really hard to stop it. Right? Once you throw a rock, you can't pull it back. And if that rock happens to be a 10 megaton nuke, not so good. So we've got treaties in place to prevent us from bringing real nuclear explosives into, into orbit. But before that treaty came in, there was a really nifty idea called Project Ryan. This is a one mile long, so it's 1960s, so we're not metric, one mile long spacecraft. And what you do is you carry a whole bunch of little nuclear bombs, sort of Hiroshima-sized, you know, 10 kiloton kind of things, and you spit them out the back through a hole in a gigantic plate on shock absorbers, and you light them off behind you, and it pushes you. It's a pusher plate. Now, it sounds like a really crazy idea, but in fact, it would work just fine, right? You don't have any air in space, so what you're really getting is the push of the energy from the explosion pushing you along, and the shock absorber takes up the shock. You basically are, are utilizing an awful lot of energy. It's fairly close. You're using a big fraction of the nuclear energy is going into pure push. And in fact, with a reasonable design, and there were, reason, there were in fact, reasonable designs, and a lot of challenges, but the, the original Project Orion capability could, in fact, using, I think it was 10 or 100 times more nuclear bombs than we've ever produced, but no, that's just a production issue, you could get to the Alpha Centauri AB system in about 100 years. That's pretty good. That's down from 75,000 years. So just with something which on the face of it is like about the craziest idea you could come up with, it's a relatively inefficient use of, of nukes, but it could get you. It could give you enough go to get to Alpha Centauri in a century. So that's kind of two generations on the spacecraft. So you might send robotic systems because... I don't know about you, but I don't want to live on a mile-long ship with 100 years' worth of nuclear weapons. I, I, don't, I, I couldn't do that. It's bad enough living knowing they're somewhere underground now, just knowing I'm carrying them all behind me and then lighting them off every few... Yeah, that'd be weird. Um, this obviously got shelved. You couldn't test it in space because we went into the treaty where you couldn't light off nukes. But there were serious NASA and Air Force efforts to figure out how to actually test this or, uh, concept in space until they figured out that was probably a bad idea. In, in the 1970s, uh, the British Interplanetary Society in, in the UK undertook a, a fairly 
really serious design study called Project Daedalus. Now, it, instead of using nuclear fission or thermonuclear bombs, decided to take a much more um, prudent, very proper British approach to it, and instead use acknowledge that it had been gained in the 1970s with what's called inertial confu- confinement fusion. Uh, if you've ever heard of the term laser fusion, it's Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, for example. Lawrence Livermore Laboratory? Los Alamos, yeah, one of those. Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California is working on nuclear confinement fusion where they use lasers firing at little deuterium or other fusionable pellets to use the uh, converging laser beams to basically compress and heat it to the point that it actually triggers nuclear fusion. It's not crazy. In fact, it could in fact work within the next few years if it actually goes to actually give more energy out than went into the lasers to do the compression. So it's not a crazy extrapolation. Your fuel is very lightweight. It's basically frozen little sort of pea-sized or grain-of-sand-sized pellets of deuterium and helium-3. You drive the ship out to Jupiter, which is a gigantic repository of massive amounts of hydrogen. You mine the helium and hydrogen off of that, freeze it down into a nice compact form, and you carry it in these nice big tanks. And then every now and then, you pop one of the pellets out into your gigantic ship nozzle, and by whatever means, converging lasers or whatever your favorite technology is, you bam, you basically make a little fusion explosion. This is a small impulsive fusion explosion, and the products blowing out the back give you the push. So it's what's known as a nuclear fusion pulse drive. Basically, it's sort of an impulse drive. You're basically going bump, 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 bump. So it's a little bit gentler than lighting off a nuke behind you. It's sort of a little mini nuke, and you light off a whole bunch of them, and you keep doing it to accelerate yourself up. Project Daedalus, under its design, could actually has a two-stage process, which the second stage could actually get close to 12% the speed of light. And its goal, the design goal, so they picked a, a goal just to sort of focus the design, was to go to a place called Barnard Star, 60 light years away. And the idea was to do it in one human lifetime. And so they came up with this target of 50 years, or a target speed of 12% the speed of light. Now, no one's ever built these things. The the prototypes of various pieces of of Orion were built, or certainly gotten up to the design stage that you could let a contract for it, but again, it got canceled. Project Daedalus has been largely a... um, a notional design for a long time. No one's ever actually built it, but it was based on state-of-the-art technology in nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. These are not crazy ideas. They're probably fearsomely expensive, and there are lots of practical issues which would have to be solved, but they're not out of reach of technologies we understand. Now, All of these share the same problem. They're solving the same problem. They're trying to get a lot of, like I said, a lot of energy per unit mass of fuel. They're getting a lot of go for the gram. But they still have to solve the problem that they have to carry immense amounts of fuel compared to the payload. The whole living quarters of Project Orion is that little tiny nib on the top, and the rest of this thing is basically the storage zone for the nuclear weapons. Again, the little plate up here, the little cylinder at the top here of Daedalus is whatever crew quarters and instrumentation the rest of the mass of the spacecraft is entirely taken up with the fuel. In fact, for Project Daedalus, the mass of the spacecraft was about 54 million kilograms, 54,000 tons, of which only 500 tons was payload, and all the rest of those tens of thousands of tons was the nuclear fuel. So again, it's still the problem that you're fuel heavy on these things. So that's led, that problem of I have to carry all my fuel, what you often will read in, in the literature called the reaction mass, 
Can we solve that problem? Do I always have to carry my fuel? What if I could get my energy from the outside? A couple of ideas have come up for this that are ways in which you collect your fuel or your means of propulsion doesn't require you to carry the energy source of the propulsion. There are two basic technologies that people have considered. On the left here, this little picture from your book, is a, a particular concept called a Bessard ramjet. The idea is that space is filled with hydrogen, deuterium, and other elements that can be fused. So what you do is you make a gigantic scoop out in front of your spacecraft, probably a big magnetic scoop, which might have the diameter of a planet in terms of its effective collecting area. So it's pretty kind of crazy in terms of scale. Scoops up interstellar gas, directs it down through a funnel through the ship, which then goes into a fusion engine, which blows it out the back to make your reaction mass. So it's kind of the problem of going through and sucking in your fuel as you go and fusing it to blow it out the back. So you derive the energy, you collect your fuel as you go. It's hard to know an analogy. A cow kind of does this, right? A cow gets its fuel by eating grass as it walks along. Okay, So it's a concept that could work, but it's got some crazy parameters. Interstellar space is really, really thin. Really, really thin. And pure hydrogen is not a very useful fusion fuel. Pure hydrogen fusion goes on in stars at temperatures of about 10 million degrees Kelvin through a three-stage nuclear reaction chain, the first step of which actually has a reaction rate measured in millions of years. Not very efficient. Why does the sun shine that way? Because there's a whole lot of the sun, that's why. To get fusion in one step, you already have to sweep up light elements like deuterium, helium-3, and so forth. They're rare. They're down by many orders of magnitude from the, from the hydrogen. So the idea is that your fusion would go on with the light elements, the, hydro, the, he, the deuterium, the lithium, the helium-3 that's in there, and then the hydrogen becomes what's heated by the fusion and blown out the back as reaction mass. So your fusion's coming from the rare pieces. The rarer your pieces, the bigger your net. That's the fundamental problem with the Bessard ramjet. The other way is pretty interesting. And in fact, there are a series of tests beginning to come into play, which will actually test these on orbit both this year and next, are devices often referred to as solar sails. They were originally conceived of as ways to move space probes within our own solar system by using basically gigantic sails, many kilometers across, made of very thin mylar material to catch sunlight and move it along. Ever see those little toys that have got the little propellers inside of a, a sealed glass uh, ball and when you shine light on them they set to spinning? Basically photons produce pressure just the same way wind produces pressure. And they're fairly efficient and there's a lot of photons coming off the sun. You get a little extra bang for the buck from the sun because you can sweep up solar wind. So imagine literally unfurling a sail to sunlight and then catching that sunlight and sailing backwards. You can, you can even tack with these things. They're very, very cool. You just have to be really patient. It takes you a while to get going. If any of you have ever sailed and tried to get going in a light wind, you know that it's kind of slow getting away from the dock, but pretty soon you can pick up a lot of speed. But again, you're dealing with a gigantic system, but we can actually make mylar sheets out at uh, you know kilometers, square kilometers of stuff. This is actually, this picture down here on the right is a NASA um, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center uh, concept. People have looked at this as ways to get space probes out into our outer solar system without having to carry a lot of mass. You can actually get a lot of payload out there doing this because basically most of your mass of your spacecraft now is 
spacecraft, not just simply carrying fuel and you use sunlight. Well, of course, people got the idea that, well, you know, a sun, you could actually accelerate quite a bit. You could actually could get up to a much, much faster than any chemical fuel rocket could ever get you using a solar sail, starting in around, say, unfurl it at Venus or unfurl it at the orbit of the Earth and just accelerate for a long period of time. Eventually, you accelerate up, but as you get further away from the sun, the sunlight drops off, but you're already up to speed and there's very little drag in space because space is empty. And so it brings you, accelerates you up to speed and then you cruise at that speed towards a star and then when you get close to the star, you furl your sails and you cut your drag coefficient down, cruise along at some speed, some fraction speed of light, very small, and then when you get close to the star, you turn around and unfurl the sail and slowly decelerate yourself into the system. Kind of cute, but only for the patient. Just like today, if you wanted to go from the United States to Europe, you could sail or you could take an airplane. But, you know, sailing is for the patient and the wealthy. People got the idea, well, you know, there's another way to get even more light density we shine a gigantic laser at it, firing all this power at it, and accelerate it even faster. And various calculations with lasers, which are, again, known technology, but just scaled up to very, very expensive scale, you could, in principle, get a solar sail up to a few tenths of the speed of light. You can get up to uh, Project Daedalus kind of speeds. Of course, you're really relying on that laser working all the time, and on your 50-year journey, that the people out there won't get tired of it and turn the laser off. And at which point, you're, <laughs> you're in interstellar space and you're basically screwed. Um, so, you know, I really like this idea, although I have to say the, the Austin Powers movies have completely ruined this one for me, because every time I do this, I keep thinking giant frickin' lasers, and, <laughs> you know, I just, I just can't get that out of my head. Mike Myers, damn you. Um, so let's do a little comparison. Let's look at the difference here and, and really set the, the perspective for the problem of, of interstellar travel. There's a tremendous gap between the current technology we can achieve now, in fact, have achieved with existing spacecraft and what we would need to achieve to, to basically have star flight. And I've picked two particular points, and, and these are illustrative here. So again, to remind you, the speed of light is well known. It's about 300,000 kilometers per second. So it gets from the Earth to the Moon in one second, gets from the Earth to the Sun in eight minutes. Okay, crosses our solar system in six hours. So remember, it's taking, what is it, uh, 2015 to 2006, I did that calculation, nine and a half years to get from the Earth to Pluto by conventional means. It takes only six hours for light to get to Pluto. So there's your, there's your scale right there. Voyager 1 has a mass of 721.9 kilograms. That's smaller than a fully loaded Humvee fueled and with a football team in the front seat. Actually, 721 kilograms is about the mass of the entire front defensive line of the Buckeyes. Okay, we've gotten it up to 17 kilometers per second, which is point zero 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 zero. Okay, I'm starting again. Point zero 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 six the speed of light. Six one hundred thousandths the speed of light. The interstellar travel time, where I'm taking the typical distance to be six light years, is 100,000 years for a speed like that. And that's as fast as Voyager 1's ever going to go. Project Daedalus has a mass of 54 million kilograms. You can do the math. It's vastly larger than the Voyager spacecraft, which is, I think, the biggest spacecraft we've ever lofted is Cassini, and it's only a factor of a couple to within Voyager. 
The design speed for one of the concepts for Daedalus, the multi-stage Daedalus, could get up to 12% the speed of light. If I take 12% the speed of light at face value, it could basically traverse six light years in 50 years. To put this in perspective, a Voyager-like spacecraft, which is current state-of-the-art, the time to travel to the nearest stars is basically 100,000 years. That's, the entire, that's basically the current lifespan of the human species. The oldest Homo sapiens fossils we know of in the record are 100,000 years old. So we're talking about a trip to the nearest stars that takes basically as long as we've been around as a species. The goal of Daedalus is to travel in a human lifetime, 50 years. That's the goal of, that's why this number of one-tenth the speed of light comes up. One-tenth the speed of light is the ability to make a single interstellar hop in one human lifetime. But the gap is tremendous, but it's not crazy. What it's going to require is an advanced technological civilization with a tremendous amount of will. Going to Barnard Star, the concept of that is almost purely arbitrary. But imagine now it's not Barnard Star, it's some un star yet to be named around which we detect an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone with life signatures. Then we might be able to focus the kinds of technological advances that can get there. But you need a focus for that. It could take centuries to set up, but it's not crazy. And perhaps other technologies will come into play to accelerate it. So that's the challenge, right? The problem of interstellar travel is immense energies and immense distance distances. But what if we could achieve it? And what if we even made modest achievement? Again, we're not talking about Starship Enterprise or anything. No warp drives, no cheating with faster than light. Just with technologies we can imagine. What if we actually, if, if we or some other civilization solve this problem of building these near relativistic starships, of getting close to the speed of light, then what? Well, if we look at the human history, the pattern of human exploration is to first send out single ships to perform reconnaissance. One particular group, you know, Columbus, Hudson, Captain Cook, Bougainville, whoever, who go back and give the story of what's been seen. It might be a robotic spacecraft. We then send out vast numbers of people to go live there, rather than simply shuttling them back and forth and commuting. You don't commute anymore, you colonize. Right? Every bit of our space flight to this date has been commuting. We commute to orbit, we commute to the moon. No one's colonized. That's the next step. Now, if you colonize, what you're doing is you're going out from your home system and you're making a new center. That new center is a new center of technology, it's a new place that is producing radio radiation, and it is a new place to make the next hop. So each hop is only the size of the mean distance between stars, six, ten light years. But you start from a new center by establishing at the new colony the technological infrastructure to build the next or fuel the next starship. That's the point of interstellar colonization. It's a step-by-step -step process. But it has an amazing advantage based on population dynamics. Colonization is a rapid, exponential growth process. Here's the scenario. Start out from your home planet and hedge your bets that someone might die, but assume they're going to get success. You send out two probes to two nearby star systems that have habitable planets, but maybe no one's there, so we're, we're cool with taking them over. It's never stopped us in the past, but I don't like thinking about that in this problem. They go out there and establish two new colony worlds, build the infrastructure, and then after one generation, how much time it would take to actually build up the colony infrastructure, they construct two more starships or refurbish their own, and each of them send them out in two directions. 
So after one generation, each of the two colonies sends out two probes for two times two, or two squared, or four probes. The next generation recapitulates that. I'm assuming 100% success. And I end up with two to the third power, or eight probes. You can see the exponential growth beginning. After 10 generations, I would have 1,000 colony points. Just 10 generations. After 38 generations, the number is 300 billion. We've heard that number before. That's the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So by just a doubling with 100% success, just hopping from star to star, not doing the full travel, I could, in 38 generations, colonize the entire galaxy. It's an exponential growth process, and it happens real fast. How fast? Let's consider two scenarios. The first of these is an advanced civilization, or us, solves the problem of the fusion starship. We build Project Daedalus. We figure out how to make it work. Fusion starship that can travel at a tenth the speed of light. This is a spacecraft that can make one star hop of six light years in a human lifetime, 50 years to the nearest star system. Let's assume that it takes 150 years, about two or three generations, so we're going to be a little generous now, to give them time to build a second a pair of Daedaluses, because you only went in one. You've got to build at least a second copy and probably a third, because you might want to go home. Fuel it up, solve all the problems. So it takes you 150 years before each colony then dispatches its pair of, of spacecraft. The inhabited region would grow outwards from the home system in all directions at 1% the speed of light, basically the square root, roughly. Yeah, actually, a little less than square root. Something like something like your radius, a little complicated. It grows at 1% the speed of light. Unchecked, that would get from the home system to the edges of the galaxy in 10 million years. 10 million years is not crazy. It's actually a species lifetime, but now... By colonizing other worlds, I've hedged my bets. If the Earth gets whacked by an asteroid, or pandemic flu, or a nuclear war, someone else is out there to carry on the efforts, right? Think about themes in science fiction, right? Firefly is a good example, right? The Earth is no longer inhabitable, but everything else is radiating out, radiating out from other worlds. What you do is you hedge your bets against evolution. You break that problem of the Drake equation of the habitability of your world by having habitability of worlds, and you immediately jump into an exponential growth situation. But that's solving the Daedalus problem. What if I want to be more modest? What if I only have a modest star flight capability? What if I give up on making the flight in one human lifetime? I build generation ships, or so-called arcs. They travel at 1% the speed of light, so it takes 500 years. So people live, born, and die on these spacecrafts, and your ancestors arrive at Barnard Star or Alpha Centauri. Take a little bit more time to build these up. Let's be generous. Let's say that, you know, it's kind of bad news taking 500 years. It takes another 10 cycles, five millennia to build up a civilization, to build another arc. These are really going to be big. And then you send those out. Your inhabited region will grow at 0.1% the speed of light. Even with this relatively modest way of doing it, you could do a generation ship with a solar sail. You can colonize the entire galaxy in 100 million years. That seems like an unimaginably long time. Remember, land life has only been around for about 470 million years. So we're talking about a quarter of land life history on our planet to colonize the whole galaxy. But that number is one to conjure with. 
it's small compared to the 10 to 13 billion year lifetime of the entire galaxy. So even if you had a relatively modest civilization that got going within the first 4 billion years of the galaxy, let's make the galaxy 100 million years old, 10, I'm sorry, 10 billion years old, and the very first civilization came up after 4 billion years of evolution, so it started 6 billion years ago. It could colonize the galaxy 60 times over just by the slow boat way, much less the fast boat way. So what we've done is we've busted the Drake equation open, which was static, one civilization on one planet around one star, and introduced exponential population dynamics into the problem. It breaks up, even if I took the most pessimistic, we did the most optimistic Drake equation business of 50. What if I was super pessimistic and said there were five? One of them could, in under a fraction of the lifetime of the galaxy, completely colonize the entire galaxy. So in fact, even a pessimistic Drake equation computation could be a dramatic underestimate of the number of intelligent civilizations if colonization is possible. This leads us to an interesting question. Okay, so if that can happen, where is everybody? I put this in quotes because I didn't just simply pull that out of a hat. It is an expression made by physicist Enrico Fermi in the 1940s and is the statement of what is known as the Fermi paradox. Where is everybody if colonization is an exponential process? And that's the question we'll pick up on Monday. Have a nice Thanksgiving and I'll see you all then.